Welcome back to another episode of Data Science at Home. In this episode, we are going to speak about networks. Welcome to Data Science at Home, the podcast about data science for small companies and large enterprises. Data Science at Home is a show where we tell you the skills you need and the tools you can build at home. We are supported by World of Piggy, thinking human world, in mathematical terms. Visit worldofpiggy.com or Twitter at worldofpiggy. It's not really a big news that networks are all around us. And uh, if you think about uh, very modern companies like Netflix or Twitter or Amazon, of course, Facebook, and, and uh, for those who still remember uh, Second Life or Wikipedia as well, These are all companies that are basing their core business on the concept of networks. There are several models uh, also that have been considered for, uh, for instance, social sciences, one of which that I recall now is spreading consensus model that uh, is a network-based approach to explain how, for instance, advertisement gets spread across a population or an opinion in general uh, gets, gets published and spreads in a network of uh, people more or less connected to each other. The idea of this model is that a few peers are spreading a message and other folks are just sharing to their friends, of course, if they don't know already. When you model this phenomenon with a network, you uh, get a very realistic explanation and a very realistic representation of what really happens uh, in the real world. With this, I just want to say that the concept of network is uh, extremely powerful. But if you think that uh, networks are a very modern concept, well, you should think twice because I have in front of me a strip from the New York Times that dates back to 1953 in which they basically published something that goes like this. Emotions mapped by new geography. Charts seek to portray the psychological currents of human relationships. First studies exhibited, colored lines show likes and dislikes of individuals and of groups. And then there is a, a last line that is, I think, <laughs> the funniest that says, many misfits revealed. So, as you can understand, back in 1953, there was already someone talking about uh, networks. They just didn't call it networks, but the concept was exactly the same. Indeed, the 50s were, were the years in which the most of the science around networks uh, went, went public and got spread. So, people and researchers in general started from, from describing networks passed to engineering networks. In 1950, Alex Bavelis founded the group Networks Laboratory at the MIT to study the effectiveness of uh, different communication patterns in helping small groups of people solve common tasks. So what they basically did in this experiment was assigning tasks to uh, people who were connected with different topologies, so with different networks, and uh, they tried to, well, they measured uh, the efficiency or how fast they could uh, accomplish their task while being in one topology rather than another. And this was an experiment that allowed them to study which topology is the best for which task, which is, again, uh, recalling what is happening now in the modern concepts of networks as we know today. 
There is also the network of relationships that dates back to 2004, if I'm not wrong. It's a high school dating network, which is basically a network composed by nodes and edges where each node is uh, a folk and uh, it could be a girl or a, or a boy. And uh, the connections are, uh, well, two nodes are connected if uh, boy and girl have been into a relationship before. So at the end you get this network of relationships which is quite interesting if you look at the uh, the topology and the, the the visualization graph of the of this network. There is also back in 1991 uh, biotech companies. Uh, so biotech companies were connected to other companies or to investment or to pharma or research labs um, and the links were basically representing collaborations or financial relationships or uh, research and development relationships and also here you get a very clear explanation of what was going on back in the 90s. There are even more uh, complicated networks like a uh, uh, protein protein interaction network for those who are familiar with uh, uh, with bioinformatics this is quite the, the rule now how do you represent uh, two proteins connected to each other which means two proteins interacting with each other you can also have uh, gene to proteins or uh, gene to metabolites or protein to metabolites and so on and so forth if you want to switch back to uh, social sciences or political sciences also in that field there are uh, networks like the political network specifically the political blogosphere and the 2004 US election, which is basically a network of two huge clusters, the blue and the red one, representing Republican and uh, Democrats. In the show notes, I also uh, report a not-so-recent graph of the Internet, which is, of course, completely different from what the Internet is, is today. You can already visualize groups or very highly connected nodes, which are probably the most popular pages at the time. Networks today are an extremely powerful concept. As I said, it would be possible to represent any type of relationship, from social relationships to professional networks, for instance, network of bosses and employees, or power grids, or the internet itself. And in biology, you can represent cells, genes, proteins, diseases, and so on and so forth. What is behind the concept of network is uh, a mathematical concept that is absolutely not new. Actually, it dates back to 1920, and that's called graph theory. Now, the first example of uh, social network analysis is definitely not 10 years ago when Facebook was born, but it dates back to the 20s. Social network analysis at the time was applied to economic transactions or trades among nations and communications between groups. So these were the three fields in which social network analysis was considered for. What of course stays from the 20s to our days is that networks can represent very complex phenomena. They can have irregular structure, they can represent phenomena that can evolve in time, and they are, there are basically no limits to their dimensions. So we can have very small or very large networks representing probably the same phenomena. Regarding the complexity of the of a networks and the irregular structure, this is a very important feature or very important aspect of, of networks because with the irregular structure they can fit more or less any type of data and this allows us to represent more or less 
any type of phenomena with the concept of network. There is no phenomena that cannot be represented by a network. Probably it will be not the most efficient way, but it can still be represented by a network. Regarding evolution in time, the majority of the phenomena that we are dealing with today are dynamic systems. Think about the friendship on Facebook or any other phenomena in which there are nodes and edges, there is no um, peers and relationships, whatever the relationships are. Well, these relationships usually change in time. The network is probably the best model so far to represent in the probably the most efficient way these dynamic or these changing relationships. Back in 1998 on the journal Nature, Stephen Strogatz and uh, Duncan Watts published the small world networks, which is an extremely important concept that today is taken for granted, uh, that consists in representing the degrees of freedom of a network of people. This was not an, a novel experiment, of course, it was taken before in the 70s, but what Steve Strogatz and Duncan Watts found is that if you take a regular network, that is a network, the topology of which is quite regular, well, they found that by randomly adding new edges between any two random nodes would have reduced the degrees of freedom quite consistently. And what they found is that by tuning the, this randomness of uh, random connections decreased the degrees of freedom overall, the overall network. Which is amazing, because this means that if we are connected, for instance, if there are seven hops between me and any other person on the planet, by creating some random connections, these seven or six can go down to five or four. In 1999, there was another major finding by Albert Barabasi, who published on science the concept of scale-free networks. Now, scale-free networks have a very interesting topology that is scale-free, meaning that if you zoom in and out, you will find more or less the same topology. And um, usually this topology goes according to the power law distribution, which basically means that you have a small number of nodes highly connected and a large number of nodes uh, quite isolated. So this uh, topology is characteristic of many uh, phenomena, as we will see uh, later, and I will uh, make a list of, of the phenomena that can be represented via not only a network, but a power law distributed network. Now, of course, there are a number of definitions that are related to uh, graph theory. The first of which is, for instance, how the graph is composed. Okay, we all know that a graph is made of n nodes and e edges, uh, which could be directed or in undirected, meaning that there is an arrow that goes from node A to node B, or uh, there is no direction otherwise. There is also the concept of neighbors of a node, which are the nodes directly connected to uh, node A. And uh, you can also change the order of the, uh, of the neighbors. So for instance, if we say the neighbors of node A of order 3 means that we are considering all the connected nodes to node A up to 3 hops from A. There is the concept of reachability of two nodes, I and J, and here we have concepts like the walk, the trail, or the path, where the walk is an alternating sequence of nodes and edges from I to J, a trail is a walk with no repeated edges, and a path is a walk with no repeated nodes. 
and also the concept of connectivity. So node connectivity K is the minimum number of nodes that must be removed to disconnect the network. And finally, we have the concept of connectivity matrix, also known as adjacency matrix, which is a representation, a matrix representation of the graphical version of the network. And it's usually an n by n matrix in which each node is in a row and in a column, and each entry in the matrix represents, can be one or zero if uh, the network is binary, representing if the two nodes are connected or not. Now, of course, there are a number of other definitions that make graph theory a fascinating field. For instance, uh, node degree or degree distribution that can determine the statistical properties of uncorrelated networks, the concept of shortest path, diameter of a network, average shortest path, and of course, the between and centrality or eigenvector centrality that are all measures representing how important a specific node is in a network. There is the concept of communities and clusters uh, that are basically local properties shared only by a subset of the nodes. And usually we say that a cluster of nodes is a group of nodes that share a similar characteristic, while two different clusters, of course, uh, share as few as possible characteristics. And finally, network components like uh, nodes, triad, pendant, dyad, and all other basic topologies that can form a complex network. So why are networks so important? Well, if we can describe any real phenomenon with the concept of network, we are basically done because calculating on that network is such a mature field of research that uh, it's a problem that can be solved. Another important aspect of networks is that once we know the statistical characteristic of a network, we are also done because uh, that model is very realistic. It can represent our real world phenomenon very accurately. For instance, as I was saying before, the degree distribution, which is basically the statistical distribution of the degree of a node in a network. So the degree is the number of directly connected nodes to any specific node. Now, if we know the degree distribution, and for instance, if we know that this degree distribution follows a power law distribution, then the problem is solved statistically, because we can represent real-world phenomena very accurately. It turns out that the power law distribution appears in many physical phenomena, for instance, the size of the earthquakes, or craters on the moon, or solar flares, or the frequencies of words in most languages or the frequencies of family names, or sizes of power outages, or wars, criminal charges per convict, and many, many more phenomena. Probably the most common application of, uh, uh, of graphs and network theory is not Facebook, of course, is graph databases. Now, up to 1999, uh, web pages were categorized and uh, evaluated as a standalone entity. And after uh, Google, well, actually in 1999, Google adopted uh, the PageRank algorithm in which basically each page was considered and evaluated with respect to all the other pages linked to that page. Now, this turned out to be the best possible way to represent the web. Uh, it could return very accurate uh, 
results regarding to, for instance, recommendations or importance of each page. The core of the PageRank algorithm is indeed the network. There are many other applications, of course, that use and exploit the concept of uh, graphs and networks, and that's graph databases, as I said. Graph databases can do things that none of the other types of uh, NoSQL or RDBMS databases can do. So in a graph database, there are, of course, nodes and edges. Now, a node is just a single record that has at least one and potentially many named properties. Each edge defines the relationship among nodes, and both nodes and relationships have some predefined properties. So you can say that Tom is a node and is connected to Bart via a relationship the edge is friend of. So that means that Tom is friend of Bart. And you can also say that Bart, a node, is connected to a restaurant via a relationship likes, so that we can say that Bart likes restaurants. And restaurants is another node that can be connected to yet another node, for instance, New York, via the relationship located in. So we can say that Bart likes restaurants located in New York. Now, as you can see, nodes and relationships, or the edges, can be addressed with key values, and searching or querying within a graph databases that is called traversal is extremely easy. Now, these queries are designed to start at specific node and explore its relationship with all the other nodes based on the relationships requested. If you want to implement something that I just explained, like Tom is friend of Bart who likes restaurants located in New York, explaining this with a traditional database usually means that I have to collect three different tables, join these tables, then store some kind of results in a, in a scratch space or a memory, and uh, finally filter according to some criteria, write a more or less complicated query, and then probably I'm done. While in a GraphDB, all this comes straightforwardly. As GraphDBs become more dense, traversal, that is uh, searching or querying the database, may require stopping at the same node several times, which, which can slow the, the, the search, of course. So as a result, GraphDBs learn and index these common relationships to speed up search. This is as a reply to all those who think that GraphDBs are not good because there is no index concept implemented. Well, there is. A GraphDB, so what are the advantages of GraphDBs? Well, a GraphDB can be extremely fast when data are connected while traditional RDBMs can be made to replicate graphical ones, the extensive use of joins would make this technique quite slow. So if I need to join three or four tables on uh, thousands of records, I already, I'm already spending much of the time joining and saving into memory. All of this disappears with graph databases. From an implementation point of view, it's also much easier to query a GraphDB rather than a traditional RDBMS we can also quickly handle complex queries involving multiple levels of related data that we can also do, of course, with the joins and inner joins, but that would take much, much longer. Of course, there are some disadvantages. For instance, uh, traditionally, uh, graph databases have been scaled vertically and not horizontally, as searching nodes on different machines would dramatically slow the process. But there are some vendors who are already supporting and uh, uh, doing some research in this field.
what we really need when we switch to the concept of graph databases is indeed the conceptual shift in thinking for developers. Uh, so there is a kind of a learning curve at the beginning that is required because we have to think differently. It has been shown that applications requiring a very deep and complex joins in a traditional RDBMS can be replaced by GraphDBs typically with an increase in speed that is greater than 100 times. Think about modeling and storing 1 billion people objects and uh, 1 billion non-people objects to provide an earth view drill down from planet to sidewalk. Well, that was an application of Neo4j, uh, that is a GraphDB provider, which works just great. Network management, genealogy, public transport links and roadmaps are all applications of GraphDBs that are extremely faster than uh, traditional uh, database systems. All of these, of course, would have not been possible without the concept of network and graph theory, which I repeat, is something that comes from 1920. And if modern applications still rely on the concept of network, it means that it's a really powerful one. Remember, the richest people in the world look for and build networks. Everyone else looks for work. Data Science at Home is the show where we tell you the skills you need and the tools you can build at home. We are supported by World of Piggy, thinking human world in mathematical terms. Visit worldofpiggy.com or Twitter at worldofpiggy. Hey, if you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes and help this podcast reach more ears. So tell your friends and colleagues that we exist. We will really appreciate.